0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to go uh, meet the teacher at the back. And uh, as they're going, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, we're coming um, in the book of Exodus to one of the greatest epiphanies in the entire Bible, one of the most majestic sightings of God in the Old Testament, one of the most important portions of of old testament theology and so lord as we prepare to come um, we confess that we need you we need you to prepare our hearts as you're doing with israel as, as you're, you're calling them to consecrate themselves lord as we approach the the epiphany at mount sinai may we approach with care and uh, to that end lord would you be with me as i preach would you be with all of us as we hear and lord i pray that your word would have its effect in us help us to see and to understand what you're doing here. And Lord, I wanna pray for um, those who are sick in our congregation, uh, think especially of Dick and Jeannie Dinsmore, and uh, we haven't seen them in a few weeks, and Lord, we pray that you would shower on them your abundant mercy, your healing touch, Lord, that you would restore their strength and that we would get to enjoy them for um, another period of time. And uh, so, Lord, have mercy on them and heal them. And also, Lord, I notice my brother Bob is missing, Um, and i pray that you would heal his his um, sickness as well Um, and i heard this morning philip is not well father these illnesses these diseases that come are not part of your original creation Uh, humans are not supposed to suffer like that and so lord we pray against the um, the effects of the fall in their lives and have mercy on them lord be with us now in your word we ask in christ's name so where we saw the last couple of chapters, remember I said we, we learned that Moses was just a guy. There, he he went to great lengths to show he's just a normal person. He was overwhelmed by the idea that he had to provide water for the people. That that where am I supposed to get that? And the Lord went and stood before him and, and made water come out of a rock. It wasn't Moses that did it. And then when the um the Amalekites came and attacked them, it was Moses who went up on a hill and held up the staff of the Lord, but He's such a weakling, he's such a human being, he's such a normal person, he couldn't keep his arms up. And his arms weakened and fell down. The Amalekites would prevail and he had to have help to hold it up. Moses is just a man. And last week we saw when his father-in-law Jethro came to him and said, what are you doing? It's not good, you can't judge all of these people. Moses has the same kind of failings that we do. He's, He's finite in space and time, he can't be everywhere at all times and he can't carry the burden that was put on him. And also don't miss, he thought he could. (laughs) He planned on doing it. He, He misunderstood himself. He needed an external person to come and say, Moses, you can't do this. And you remember what I said last week was, it was really important for us as we move into this next section to understand Moses is just a man. Because what we're gonna see from this point on is Moses do some stupendous things. And he's going to act as an intermediary between Israel and and God. And so it's really important that we remember the only reason he's doing that, the only reason is because God called him to do that. That's the only reason that he's doing it. Do you remember at the burning bush when God first called him and said, I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to set my people free. And Moses' response was, I don't talk good, God. Can't you send somebody else? I'm not the right person for this. And, and, and God, I think, in a, a very kind way was saying, you're right, you're terrible, you're not good, you're not enough, but I am, so can we do this together? Will you follow me? So that's important that we see who the real actor in this is, it's God. Because where we're coming to now, at the beginning of, of chapter 19, is setting us up for this tremendous event at Mount Sinai, And right now, you know, it says that after the third moon they'd gone out, they camped, and and Moses kind of repeats, they camped in the wilderness of Sinai, they camped before the mountain of the Lord. They're going to be here from this point until about halfway through uh, Leviticus. They're going to be in this camp for about a year or so, at the foot of the mountain, and the amount of real estate in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, that it takes up is huge. This is significant. We're coming to a really important part of biblical history. So they move there, and they stop, and we need to remember, Moses has gone to great lengths to remind us that he's only a man, and the point of this is all about God. So what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see that God rules. Remember, we're in the section of Exodus that God rules us, and how does God rule us? How does he rule over us? What we're going to see this morning is he rules over us through covenant, and when we see what we mean by covenant, you're going to see this is tremendously good news, that he rules over us through covenant. It's really great news. So the introduction to this is verses really one and two. And and there's a lot of repetition about leaving Rephidim and traveling through the wilderness and going to the wilderness at Sinai and camping in the wilderness of Sinai. Uh, The word for wilderness there is not blowing desert. It's not, you know, scrub brush. It is a place where you could actually take sheep and, and manage them. So isn't that important for God to do that? He's going to bring his people to a place where he's going to meet with them and their herds will be okay. So it's, it's not wilderness as in a bad way. It's wilderness as in nobody lives there, and this is a good place for the sheep. So there's our introduction. Now, what comes next is really, if you look at the structure of it, it is God establishing covenant with his people. Uh, there was a book by a theologian named Meredith Klein called By Oath Consigned, and in that, he looks at how they established covenants in, in these days, back in, in the ancient Near East. What was the format that, that kings would often use uh, to establish a covenant? They use two great words. I love these two words, the Caesarian and the vassal. Two great words. The Caesarian was the reigning king. He was the king that won. So if there was a battle or an economic uh, um, uh, turmoil or something, the, the, the Caesarian was the king that won. And what he would do is he would take the king who lost and he wouldn't like execute him and say, now your kingdom is mine. Often what they would do is they say, you maintain your kingdom, but you maintain it under my authority and my rule. That's the vassal. That's what vassal means. And so what Klein did is he looked at some of the extra biblical documents and said, how did they establish covenant? What was the pattern? And what he determined was we see that same pattern used quite often in the New Testament or in in the Bible. Um, essentially what the pattern was, was they had a preamble to the covenant. The the winning king would have this preamble, and what he would do is he would recount who he is and what he has done and, and establish himself as, I am triumphant. I am the greater king. These are all the majestic things I've done. That was your preamble. The next thing that would happen would be the stipulations. Since I have defeated you, since I have overcome you, this is what you will do, you will provide this much gold every year, or this much grain every year, or this much wine every year. Um, you will establish your rulers this way. The stipulations, this is what you must do. And then at the end of that would be the blessings and the curses. Why is it good news for you that you're under me as, as your Caesarian? Because this is what I'm going to provide for you. Because I want the income coming from your kingdom, I'll protect your borders or whatever it is, there would be blessings and curses. And so that was kind of the the standard frame. Now, some folks take that framework and stretch it over the entire Bible, and they find it everywhere. It's kind of like in the, uh, the 1930s, they found the Nag Hammadi Library, which showed what Gnostics believed. And in the 1930s, they found Gnosticism everywhere in the Bible. It's like, yeah, maybe not. Gnosticism didn't exist when the Bible was written It was just kind of beginning And the same thing here is is this covenant structure Is helpful but I don't want to Like stretch it over everything But in this little section here I think we see that happen So here's, here's the preamble This is what happens in the preamble To God establishing his covenant with Israel Moses went up to God So they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai Moses goes up to God God didn't necessarily call him Or at least it's not recorded that way why would Moses do that? Why would he get there and then charge up the mountain to go find God? Well, because what happened in chapter 3 when he was at the, the uh, burning bush, um, I think it was verse 21, God says, here's how you'll know. You are going to lead the people out of Israel. You're going to bring them back here, and you will serve me here. So God is, is saying, you're going to bring them back to this mountain where, where I first talked to you in the burning bush, and that's exactly what happened. So, of course, Moses goes, i got to go talk to God And he heads up the mountain to where he spoke with God. So he goes up. He's going to go up and then come down and go up and come down twice. He's going to go talk back and forth. He's going up to God, down to the people, up to God, down to the people. He'll do it twice. So Moses goes up, and the Lord calls to him out of the mountain, saying, Preamble, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So in a a very short scope, remember, it starts, it's been three months, three moons since they left Egypt. So it's been maybe a year since Moses first showed up and talked to them. The people he's speaking to didn't hear about it from their grandparents. They experienced it. They were there. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Do you remember the 12 plagues? You were there. You saw what I did. There was nothing they could do. And any time that I said something was going to happen, I sent my, my speaker Moses, my, my, my servant Moses to, prophet and, or to uh, Pharaoh and said, this is what's going to happen. And it happened. That's how I defeated um, the Egyptians. That's how I got you out. I bore you on eagle's wings. I carried you out of slavery. It was only three short months ago you left slavery. Why did you leave slavery? Because I did that. Because I led you out. I visited nine plagues on the the nation of Egypt. I killed the firstborn of Pharaoh to make the point that they were to let you go. I brought you out across the Red Sea. I parted it. And when, when Pharaoh's army came through, I crashed the waves down and I destroyed Pharaoh's army. Could you defeat Pharaoh's army? And then when I led you out into the wilderness, you got to a place where the water was bitter. You couldn't drink it. I made it sweet. I took you to Elam, which had 12, spring, or 12 uh, palm trees and multiple springs so that you could feed your flock, you could feed your people. When, you, when I led you out of there, you complained about having food. I have been raining food on you six days a week ever since then. That came from me. I did that for you. I brought you food. And then when you came to Massa and Mirabah and you grumbled and complained, I made water jump out of a rock. That's what I did for you. And when the Amalekites came out to attack you, when they came out to chase you off their land, I was the one who gave you victory as Moses held my staff over his head, my sign of judgment. That's what I did. This is the promise that God made them. Look at the marvelous deeds that I have done. Do you see why God is the conquering king? He has done all these marvelous things for them. I bore you on eagles' wings. You soared. You, you, you flew out of there. You, you didn't have any problems getting out of there. I took you right through, right where I wanted you to go. Now, the people may disagree with the eagle's wings. Um, they were terrified when they got to the Red Sea, and they turned around and they saw uh, Pharaoh's army coming after them. That was not a pleasant sight. And, and then when they got out in the wilderness and they got to water and they took a big slurping drink and it was bitter, they were not happy about that. They grumbled. And then when they couldn't find food, they whined about that. And then God brought them some food. But they were on the verge of starving. And then they got to um, Massa and Meribah, and all, there was no water anywhere. So, repeatedly, they've been having hard times over these last three weeks or three months. But God is telling them, I bore you on eagle's wings. None of this has been beyond my control. I have done these things for you. So, that's the preamble. That's the great things that God has done for them. Now, He states His stipulations. This is what you must do. This is what your part in this covenant is going to be. In verse 5, he says, Now, therefore, if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. So the call is to obey my voice. I, I, I was telling Dan this morning, I am so itching to jump into law at this point. And we need to understand what the law means and how the law fits and what's going on. So when he says that you will keep my, obey my voice and keep my covenant, I just want to get in and start dealing with law, but we're not there yet. So I'm going to have to rein it in. Um, what he's telling them is, if you will obey me, if you'll hear what I have to say and you'll do what I tell you and you keep my covenant, which I haven't pronounced to you yet, this is a proposal. I'm the, the reigning and, and the, the, um, the victorious king. So if you will do that, then we'll get to the blessings. Now, I couldn't resist. I've got to say at least one thing about law. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, did that mean you must never, ever, ever sin? That can't be. Since Adam and Eve's fall, we are sinners. By nature, we sin. So to keep the law didn't mean never, ever, ever sin. What was a big chunk of the law? The tabernacle, the offerings, what God told them was not don't ever, ever sin, but when you do sin, because you will sin, because everybody does sin, here's how you take care of that. This is what you do. You offer this for that sin. You offer this for that sin. You repay this person that much when you cheat them. This is how you do it. So God is not being unrealistic in this and saying you have to obey, and if you're not perfect in every every single perfect way, then that's it. What he's saying is I'm giving you the law. I'm going to tell you how to live, I'm going to tell you what to do when you don't conform to it. So what does he mean if you obey my voice and keep my covenant? If it's not, remain sinless. What he's saying is, me. Will you be faithful to me? Will you dedicate yourself to me? Will you follow me? Project forward to the kings. when, When Israel is settled in the land and they have kings, what did the kings regularly do that really angered God? They worshiped Baal. They set up Ashtaroth poles. They worshipped the goddess of heaven. They worshipped anything except for who God was. So it wasn't "Don't ever sin." It was "Remain faithful to me. Make me first and foremost." That's what I want. If you will do that, if you will remain faithful to me in covenant, I will take care of your sins. I will maintain our relationship, and I will draw us together. And we'll get to the blessings. That's His promise. That's a foretaste of what we're gonna do when we get to law. That's just a little bit of it. So ultimately, keeping covenant is treasuring God. Will you treasure him? Will you say, This is the God I want to be allied to? This is the God who's worth following. And so, therefore, if you will indeed keep obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You shall be my treasured possession. I'm going to enter in, do you see the, why covenant is such a great thing? I'm going to enter into this covenant with you and if you obey this stipulation, then you will be my tre- you will be the most important thing to me. You will be my treasured possession. Actually, the word that's used there for treasured possession is used in the context of these kind of covenants elsewhere outside the Bible. Ugaritic texts, if you want the fancy word for it, mentions this word in that context. So what the the, the king is saying is I've defeated you in battle or I've economically overcome you and now I'm going to love and care for you. You are my treasured possession. You're important to me. When God says it, he's going to expound on it. He's going to amplify. What does it mean you will be my treasured possession? Well, this is what it looks like. You will be my treasured possession among all peoples, all the nations on the earth. Why? For all the earth is mine. All the earth is mine. They can look at this and go, yeah, you know what? We just saw that happen in Egypt. You overcame all their gods. You're not chased out of Egypt. You're not excluded from Egypt. All the earth is yours. You can do what you want. We saw that in Canaan. We hear about it from our grandfathers of what you did in Canaan, watching over Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, leading them through there. You're the king over all of this. But there's more to this. And that, that little phrase, all the earth is mine, is going to amplify in a way that they can't understand at this point. It's going to explode in a way that that we just won't understand until we get to the New Testament. So he says, you will be my treasured possession because all of the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. There will be a king. There will be a kingdom. And you who are in the kingdom will be priests. So imagine a nation where everybody in the kingdom is a priest. That's that's just incredible. What is a priest? What do we mean by priest? This is the first time we've really run into that. What is a priest? What does a priest do? Well, if you think in the Old Covenant, there was the priest and there was the prophet, and there were two different roles. And generally, theologians will say what the prophet did was he spoke to the people for God. And what the priest did is he went from for the people before God to offer sacrifice, to to bring atoning work. And and so one speaks from God to the people and the other one unites the people to God. And, And that's not bad, but it's not siloed either. You know what I mean by siloed? It's a way of saying that that's all that a priest ever does. And that's all a prophet ever did. The priests were also told you will teach the people my laws and my commandments. You will show them the way. So when somebody comes to a priest and says, I have a skin disease here, the priest doesn't go, okay, let's go offer sacrifice. He has to analyze it, take a look at it, understand what's going on, tell them what to do. Now you go sit outside the camp for seven days and then come back and we'll look. So there's more than just offering sacrifice. There's a, an instruction piece as well. And then think of Samuel. Do you remember Samuel from when Saul was king? Samuel was a priest. He he was brought up in the temple. He offered sacrifice. As a matter of fact, Saul got in big trouble because Saul got itchy when Samuel didn't show up and Saul offered sacrifice instead. And Samuel goes, what are you doing? What did I tell you? I would come and I would offer sacrifice. So the the roles aren't like uniquely ironed off and, and walled off in that way. Also, I just finished the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a priest and he was a prophet. So so they're not isolated. But let's go with what generally it means to be a priest and what generally it means to be a prophet. What God's people would be is a kingdom of priests. They would go and represent people before God. Who are they going to represent? Each other? Well, yeah, you'd have to. I mean, you'd have to at some point represent each other a bit because it's not like a priest who got a skin disease could check himself out and, and give rules. He would need to go to another priest to have that kind of thing done. Or if he, sac- if, he, if he sinned, well, the priests always offered a sacrifice for their own sin too, so they could represent themselves. Who are a kingdom of priests going to represent before God? In this context, the rest of the world. The world is mine. You will be the priests for the rest of the world. What your role in this covenant will ultimately be is you're going to represent and you're going to bring atoning sacrifice for the sins of the rest of the world, not just for each other, but for everybody. You will be a kingdom of priests, and you will be a holy nation. So this will be a nation that is holy. What does it mean to be holy? Well, in in the ultimate extreme, the, the, the most lofty idea of holiness is God himself. And when you look at the creation story, God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. He didn't come across a heavens and an earth that already existed and he got in and started meddling. He created it. And so how did he create the heavens and the earth? With his word, he said, let there be and there was. So when he created the heavens and the earth, the earth was void and formless. It was empty and it didn't have any form. So how did he begin to form the earth and how did he fill the earth? By zapping it from a distance, by, by pulling a chunk of flesh out of his thigh and throwing it on the earth and there's land and his blood would fill the seas and now it's, it's an ocean and, and his, uh, his hair would be the sky or something like that. No, it's not that intimate, it's not that involved. He created, he formed and he filled by saying, let there be and there was. So he's neither far off and, and aloof and gone, nor is he part of creation, but he's intimately involved with it and he said, he speaks into his creation. The other creation myths were God's fought and ripped each other's skulls off and all kinds of nasty things. Pantheism says, well, you know, God is just part of creation as well. Um, if you want a, a God who's ultimately holy and ultimately gone and, in a way it's Allah in Islam. He is so other, he is so holy, he is so different. He would never really deal with people and you can never really know what he's up to. He's ultimately, ultimately holy. And the pantheist God is, well, he's just part of creation. He's here with us and and along with us. The Jewish and ultimately the Christian God is neither. He's holy. But he is connected and involved and engaged with his creation. So holy, in, in the sense of who God is, means he is utterly other. He's very distinct, very different. If the doctrine of the Trinity, where three individual persons who are not the same person but one God troubles you... Your God is holy. If the doctrine of the incarnation, how can one person have a fully divine nature which includes limitlessness, limitless knowledge, omnipresence, being everywhere, and have the nature of a human being which entails limitedness in time and in space? How could those two natures exist, not mingled, not confused, not at war with one person? Your God is holy. He is utterly other. It's just really huge. How could a God who says, if a person kills somebody else, they must be executed, then order them to wipe out an entire nation? Canaan, go in and kill everybody. Why? Because I said so. How can a God do that? I find that morally repugnant. This God is holy. He is utterly other, and he's going to contradict you at times. He's going to make you uncomfortable at times. And one of the contemporary complaints is, how could a perfect, holy, loving God, a God who is love, throw his son in front of a speeding truck to save a bunch of people who hate him? Why would he kill his son to save everybody else? Because he's holy. Because he's, he's actually holy. He doesn't think like you. He doesn't look like you. He doesn't act like you. He's holy. He's perfect. He's loving. So holy in that sense, the sense of God means utterly different, utterly separated, very unlike us. So what does he mean when he says, Israel, you will be a holy nation? Does it mean you will be like me? It can't. God knows how he created us. What he does say is, Israel, you will be a holy nation. You will be set aside by me for my purposes. You will do things for me, for my purposes, and therefore you will be unlike the rest of the nations. You will be holy to me because I have called you and I have set you aside. You are my people. So you're a holy people. That's the promise that they've been given. If you'll keep my covenant, if you'll obey my voice, you will be a nation of priests You will do exactly what I said I was going to do through Abraham. I told Abraham that in his offspring, the nations would be blessed. And you can be Abraham's offspring. And you can bring a blessing to the nations. And and you can do that because you will be holy to me. That's the other promise that God routinely makes in his covenants. They will be my people and I will be their God. That's his desire. So this is what's being offered Israel, do you want this? Look what I've already done for you. Look how I've already cared for you. How I I bore you on eagle's wings. I rescued you from slavery just as I promised your grandfather Abraham I would. And now here's the promise. Here's what I'm offering you. A nation, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, segregated, hold off, brought to me, used for my purposes. Israel, do you want that? So that's the blessings, that's the promise of the blessings that the the covenant offers them. So then Moses comes down that mountain again and he talks to the elders of the people and he sets before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. Everything God had told him, Moses repeats. This is the the offer. Now he speaks to the elders of the people but who replies is all the people answered. So this is probably not like a, a, a 10 minute camp meeting they get the elders together. Here's what's going on. It was probably bring the elders together, explain to the elders what's going on. Now you go back and talk to your people. They go back, they discuss it with their people. The people go, yep, that sounds good to us. And all the people answered, all that the Lord has, um, um, I'm sorry, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they've agreed to the stipulations of the covenant. We will do this. And now Moses heads back up the mountain. <laughs> He, he, like I said, he goes up and down quite a bit. He reported the words to the, of the people to the Lord. God, they agreed. They said that they would do everything you said. So now what, comes, what happens? What's the next thing? The Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. One of the Jewish uh, commentators said, it's not thick cloud. It's cloud cloud. It's two different words for cloud put together. And so we take the first cloud and go thick. And and he seemed to think that was a big deal. I was like, well, what is a cloud cloud? What is a cloudy cloud? What does a cloudy cloud look like? He said, an utmost cloud. I went, yeah, that's helpful. It's probably a really, really cloudy cloud that's full of cloudiness. So maybe a thick cloud is how we would describe it, don't you think? So yeah, let's call it a thick cloud. What's going to happen is God is saying, I am going to come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak to you. So God is telling Moses, I'm going to come down, and I'm going to be on Mount Sinai. Now, when God shows up, is it always, does it always look the same? Well, previously, it looked like a bush on fire that never got consumed. Um, with Abraham, it looked like three guys showing up, and, and he knew that one of them was the Lord. Um, it, it, God's epiphanies, his appearances, his, his showing of who he is, is contingent on what the situation is. So in this case, he's going to appear as a thick cloud. And, and I think what he's saying is, I'm going to be hidden. My glory will be hidden in this cloud so you can't see it because it's too much for any one person to see. But I'm going to actually come down and I'm going to have a manifestation of my presence there that is so rich and so thick so that when I speak to you, they will hear. They're going to hear me speak directly to you. Can you imagine what that voice would have sounded like? When, when it's described in the New Testament, when God speaks from heaven, it sounds like thunder. It's, it's a majestic, a huge voice, but it was done in a way that they could understand. And here's the part that really kind of blows your mind, that they also may believe you forever. I want the people to hear me give my words to you so they may believe me forever, believe you. This is why I think Moses has been really adamant, look, I'm just a man, This isn't me doing this. And when when God says, you believe me, I think he's preparing them for that very verse, that very word that he says. He's saying, when you obey me, when you believe me forever, it's only because what I've just done, which is repeat what God said. So think about that in the context of the New Testament. The the great parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus is, is in Abraham's bosom. He is relaxing in heaven. He has suffered miserably on earth. The rich man who has dined luxuriously, is suffering. He, he is tormented by the, by the flames. And, and when he says, look, Abraham, I, I know I can't get out of here. There's no way out of here. But I have brothers who are still alive. Could you send Lazarus? and Just have him come back from the dead and go talk to my brothers so they don't wind up in this place also. Lazarus is, is, is the one that could convince them. They would see him and they would know him. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe Moses, they're not going to believe a man rising from the dead. So when he says, believe Moses, it is believe what Moses has left us. Believe Moses' word. That's his goal. He wants them to be faithful to covenant. He's going to, he intends to communicate covenant through Moses, so they need to believe Moses forever. So Moses, again, it repeats, told the words to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, okay, they've agreed. Now, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. So he says, all right, they agreed. He doesn't just kind of go, okay, well, here's the deal. He says, you need to get the people ready. In in three days, it's gonna take you three days to get these people ready. And so number one, I want them to wash their garments. Pause, they had water. There was enough water for them to wash their garments. What have they been whining about so far? We don't have any water. The water is bitter, we can't drink it. There's water here, so they can wash their garments. They're going to wash themselves. What is going on? What is God doing in this? What is he saying? Take three days to prepare them. What he's doing is he's saying what's about to happen is significant. It's huge. And you don't just waltz into it. You don't come in with a a laid-back attitude about what's about to happen. You're about to meet the living God who's going to appear on Mount Sinai, And you need to be ready for that. You need to be prepared for it. So wash your garments. They have been walking in these garments probably three months, maybe even longer. And it's time to wash them. Get the the sand out. Get the dirt out. Get the smell out. Be ready. Be clean. Um, The Jewish commentator pointed out that the garments is what they got from the Egyptians, so they needed to wash the Gentile out. I think that's very much a new, you know, what's called Second Temporal Judaism um, approach to it. I don't think that's what Moses had in mind, was get the Gentile out so, so they'll be clean. I think what he's saying is, you've been tending sheep and kind of wandering through the wilderness. You need to get cleaned up. So wash your garments. And on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for them around the mountain. In a, he, he says, basically, put up a fence. And if anybody crosses that fence, kill them. There, the, the mountain, because the mountain itself is not holy, the mountain is holy because God comes down and steps on top of it, because his presence is, is right there on the mountain. It is on top of the mountain. So therefore, the mountain is now set aside for his use. Anybody who, it, even if it's a, a, a sheep or a goat or you know, a ground squirrel, throw rocks at it, shoot it with an arrow, kill it if it comes up on my mountain. This is holy ground right now. The only one who may come up is you when I call you. So God, why is Moses get to go up? Because he's such a great guy? No, because God chose him. That's why. That's his his only reason. So he sets the the limit around them. And he says, and when the trumpet sounds a loud blast, they shall come up to the mountain. I I thought you just said kill anybody who comes up the mountain. He's not saying have everybody, I'm going to sound a blast, have everybody come up the mountain. He says have them move toward the mountain. Come to the mountain. Draw closer. He wants them even closer. And so Moses comes back down the mountain and he consecrates the people. They wash their garments and he says, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Um, that's an odd, <laughs> I hate ending the sermon right there. That's just an odd thing to say. Um, what's going on? Well, first of all, there are some folks who look at this and go, wash your garments. It's, it's kind of picturing baptism. And you have to be baptized to wash away the sin and everything. Well, that's kind of an odd thing because then if you think, that's baptism washing away sin, then women are sinful, and sex is sinful, and sex is not sinful, God created it, and women are not bad. So what does he mean by don't go near women? Well, we haven't got there yet because we haven't got into the law, but one of the things in the law is not just sin, but it's being unclean, which means you're not ready for coming into the presence of God, you haven't been cleaned yet. So coming near to a woman could involve uh, bodily emissions, and so we're not gonna do that. We, we wanna stay clean. So stay away from women for right now and, and set yourself aside and be pure. So why this? Why does he have these things going on? Why wash and all of that stuff? Um, it's, I think it's a concept that we're not familiar with called formality. Um, I just uh, was reading a, a book by a man named Yuval Levin. Um, he's a, a, a Jewish political commentator and he wrote a book called The Time to Build and what he's saying is social media has really wrecked our country and we should be building it back up, and how can we build back up? And one of the things he talks about is formality. So let me read this, this brief quote from uh, his book, A Time to Build. He says, formality has a bad name in our relentlessly democratic culture. We tend to equate it with stuffiness and rigidity. Informality, on the other hand, is synonymous with authenticity. But another way of understanding formality might be as a means of fitting social form to social function. The form meets the function. It's a way of behaving when something important is at stake, which sends a signal regarding the importance. It establishes a framework for its integrity and structure and lends credence and protection to all who are involved. So formality, today it has a bad word, but what's going on here is as Moses comes to the people and he tells them, consecrate yourself. Consecrate means make holy. Set yourself aside. Wash your garments. Abstain from sex. Set, set this back. What he's doing is he's in establishing a formality, a, a, a framework to say what is about to happen is really important. It's really significant. And, and you have to prepare for it. You don't go charging in. So we like the idea of, well, uh, boldly enter the throne room of grace, right? So we can just come as we are and and kick our feet up and, hey, dad, what's going on? Uh, We can be very informal, and and it's not horrible. I mean, formality can be really bad. Formality can be used in a way that strangles people. Um, Formal structures can malfunction. The one that Yuval Levin brought up is institutional uh, racism. Is, is these unintentional consequences of racist policies linger on, and so the formality of it has, reper- uh, has recurring um, repercussions. So formality can really shut down people. But uh, I was thinking of a quote from J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is a great theologian. He studied the Puritans a lot. He's written some really great books. Uh, Knowing God is uh, a mind blower. Um, I remember in Korea trying to get through that a number of times, and it just was so rich and so great. So J.I. Packer, great theologian. He's an Anglican, and if you're not familiar with Anglicanism, it's not Roman Catholicism. But it's not exactly Protestantism, even Protestantism either. The, the Church of England was formed before the Protestant Reformation, and so when Lisa and I lived in England, we were Roman Catholic, we turned on the TV, and we thought we were watching a mass. It was actually an Anglican service, and we could have we said everything with them because they tend to be what they call, they use the phrase, the via media the medium way between Protestant and Catholic. Uh, they find this, this space in the middle. So Packer says when he's talking about liturgy and what he means by liturgy is a very formal liturgy, not like ours, but written prayers and stand up and sit down and kneel and, and that kind of stuff and let's recite this and say that. What he said about that formality in worship is he said it, he found it liberating because he knew what was coming next. And he could intentionally engage with that and say, now I know, okay, we've said that, now we're going to do this. And it, it, he found it liberating because he didn't have to wonder, what's the next song we're going to sing or what's the next thing? It was all written out in front of him. It was, it was written down in the, the book of church order or, or common book of prayer. So formality can be helpful. And that's what God is doing here is he's, he's making this formal setting so that when he comes and presents himself to them, the people, if they're paying attention, the formality should say, this is significant. This is important. During the, um, the impeachment trials that have gone over the last couple of weeks, the sergeant at arms in the house began by saying, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. How, when was the last time you said hear ye? <laughs> it's in archaic form. He started out by saying, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye all assembled, the, all the congressmen had to be there. They were required to be in their seats and remain silent under pain of imprisonment. I, I wish they would say that in Congress a little more often personally, but <laughs> that was a very formal thing. And what did it tell the congressmen at the beginning? This is serious business. So that formality can have that function. So what's going on here is God is saying, as I make you into my holy people, as I draw you into this covenant, As I establish you as a nation of priests, you have to understand the solemn nature of this. God is important. God is is ultimately important. And so when we approach him, he sets these boundaries. He sets these ways. So that's what's happening. That's how it ends. What we'll see next week is God shows up. That's the most important. Anytime God shows up and God speaks, that's the important part. So next week, God shows up and that's the important part. But what does this covenant have to do with us? What is this how does this fit with us? Well, this is the part where in my preparations I kept just stopping because I'd get like vapor lock. It's so so big. It's so immense. This is also where I want to jump off and get into law again and I can't. <laughs> so we'll have to put put a hold on that. Part of this is quoted in the New Testament. This is from 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what Israel had been offered a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that they may proclaim the excellence of him who called them out of darkness. That was what was being offered. That malfunctioned. It didn't come off for Israel in that way. But Peter writes to the church and he says, you're fulfilling that function now. Now that doesn't mean the Jews are cut off and there are no Jews. It's now a mix of Jew and Gentile. They are brought in. They are a chosen people. They are a royal priesthood. They are a holy nation. They are a people for his own possession. And our task is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The cloud's gone. The cloud is dispersed. Now we we march into his glorious light. And, And to prove the point that he's talking Jew and Gentile, he then goes on and says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. So go back to the promise, you will be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The problem was they thought that that meant that it was what I call stative. In other words, the nations were never going to change. The nations would always be exactly what the nations were, pagan, worshiping idols, worshiping rocks and stones, and Israel would be called into this unique role where they would be interceding for them, and the nations would always be excluded, and Israel would always be in. That was the mistake they made. And when we get to the New Testament, that's exactly what's going on. When, when they asked Jesus, why don't you wash your hands when you come back from the market? It wasn't because markets are dirty places. They didn't have an understanding of germs. It was because markets are dirty places because there's a bunch of Gentiles there. And Jesus says, you guys are so picky, you will take a brand new couch and soak it in water to get the Gentile off of it. And yet that's not what it's all about. So they had this understanding, the nations are always going to be excluded and we're always going to be the holy people. But what were they supposed to do? What did God say? (laughs) The world is mine. It was never meant to keep the world out. He was doing this to draw the world in. And so that's why 1 Peter chapter 2 says what it says. We have now been benefit, that, that covenant with Israel did not work. It did not do what it was supposed to do. And we'll get into law and we'll understand. It wasn't because there was anything wrong with the covenant or the law. It was something wrong with the people. But God says, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm accomplishing my purposes anyway. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take those same promises, I'm going to roll them into something even bigger. I'm going to bring the nations in. And when I bring the nations in, the Gentiles and the Jews together, Paul the apostle Peter the the apostle these these guys are Jews they're going to go out and preach the gospel to the gentiles and the gentiles are going to come in so that the church may proclaim my excellencies because I've called you out of darkness into light so now we're, we're coming into this one of the, one little note here he says in Peter it's a royal priesthood in Exodus it's a kingdom of priests um, Peter is quoting what's called the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the the Old Testament. And the way they translated kingdom of priests was royal priesthood. Because if you're a priest in a kingdom, that's an official position. You're part of the royal um, structure of the nation. So that's a fair translation to say that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So have you ever thought of the, the church as a holy nation? We're not a nation, we're, look at, we're a bunch of mongrels. We're mutts from all over the place. How can we be a holy nation? Because God has made you a holy nation. Because God has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. That sounds a lot like what Paul says in Colossians. He called you into his kingdom. He transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's how we can become a nation is we have one king. That's how we can be a, a, a chosen race, a, a holy nation because we have come under a new king. So the promise of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai was this. Now, the way that that would look is what Israel was supposed to do was remain faithful to the covenant, obey his commands, not put their hope in their own ability, not chase after every other god that ever showed up on the planet of the earth, or the the face of the earth, but instead be faithful and at the right time their Messiah would come. And when their Messiah came, he would then rule all the nations and draw them all together. And, and, and Israel could have had a huge portion in that. But instead, they trusted in themselves. Instead, they said, well, we've got this. We can do this. So what happened when their Messiah showed up? They looked him in the face. They said, we hate your guts. You have to die. It, it malfunctioned because the hearts of the people hadn't changed So this is the promise of that covenant. This is the hope of that covenant. This is where this covenant, and notice God didn't lose. He didn't go, oh, well, that didn't work. Now what do I do? What he did is he he turned it up to 11. He said, yeah, this is what was supposed to happen there. Now watch what I do this way. Click, and it goes to 11, and now all of a sudden the nations are streaming in. The church spreads across the entire globe. It's a much better covenant. So we are saved by covenant. We are saved because God has made a covenant with us. It wasn't the covenant he made with Moses. The book of Hebrews says that covenant was fading and ready to disappear. And the thought is at 70 AD when the temple fell, that was it. There was no no way that they could go offer sacrifices anymore. That covenant was gone. Did that mean we were left covenant-less? We're brought into the new covenant. It's a covenant made with Christ's blood. And so that's a better covenant because now it's not if you obey and, and you keep my covenant and you do all these things. Now it's, I have done this on your behalf. I have kept every rule, every law, everything that you needed to keep. I have done that on your behalf. Now would you come into, the, into my relationship? And so it's a better covenant. That's Hebrews all over the place. Better. A better covenant founded on better promises, made in a more secure way. So this is, this is just the seed, just the taste of it that we get in Exodus 19. We... we we haven't even got there yet. We can't quite understand it all yet. It'll take millennia for God to play it out and show exactly what he means by that. But the promise is there. And, and isn't that the promise that God always wanted was to draw his people to himself? He, he never wanted to be the God who was far off. Remember what he did in the Garden of Eden? He walked amongst the trees in the cool of the evening because he wanted to be with his people. He wanted to be with his creatures, He promised Abraham, I want to be with you. I want you to be with me. So God, this is the beautiful part of this, going back to the very beginning of God's holiness, is he wants to be with us. He really does. He doesn't want to be separated. And so, cheat and flip ahead to the end of the book. What happens there? There's a city filled with people and no temple. Why, because God's gone? No, because there's no temple needed. God dwells in the midst of his people. This is where he's saying here, now I'm going to draw near to you on Sinai. I'm going to give you a foretaste of what's coming, because I've always wanted to dwell with my people. But we've got a problem. We've got to deal with sin, and that's what's coming. So that, that's where we're going. Next week, God will show up. Um, and that's, I can't wait to do that one. That's, that's where it gets really exciting. After chapter 19, when we get to chapter 20... We're gonna do the Ten Commandments, and I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm kinda leaning towards what we call the two tablets of the law, the first four and the last six. The first four pertain to God, the last six to your neighbor. Um, That's probably where we're gonna go, but that's when we'll dig in and we'll start looking at law, and it's probably where we'll skip a bunch of chapters or roll them together and talk about the function of law for us. So um, again, I'm I'm chomping at the bit, wanna get ahead, looking forward to doing that, but we're not there yet. So we'll, we'll let God set the pace. Um, with that, let's let's close in prayer. Our gracious Father, thank you for drawing close to us. Um, the New Testament picture is that you didn't appear on a mountain uh, in a terrifying way, but Lord, you came to us in the person of your Son, fully divine, fully God, and fully human. And, and you walked right here amongst us. You, you were with us. You spent time with us. And there'll be a day when your son in his full humanity and full divinity will come back and be with us again. Thank you, Lord, that you desire to draw near, especially when we so often wander, when we so often don't want to be near, when we look at our Bible and think, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to read that, or oh, I forgot to pray again. Or, Lord, thank you for never not wanting to be with us, but to work throughout history to draw us in, to make us your people. Lord, thank you for making us a holy nation. May we behave that way. Lord, bless us with your presence, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.